0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon+. Plus. This week's episode is a conversation between Pastor Douglas Wilson and Dr. E. Michael Jones on themes from Dr. Jones' book, Monsters from the Id, The Rise of Horror in Fiction and Film. Now available in audiobook from Canon+. Plus.
1: Welcome to something that I guess we should call Monsters from the Id because I'm going to be interviewing E. Michael Jones, uh, the author of a book written in... 2000, thereabouts, uh, called Monsters from the Id. And uh, nothing nothing has happened in the last 22 years that I can see that has altered anything that uh, uh, Mr. Jones wrote in that book. And so I thought we should uh, talk about it. It really is relevant. Um, the Monsters from the Id is about the fascinating genre of horror. Um, Where do you where do you trace the rise of that genre?
0: Well, it's uh, horror is
1: the flip side of revolution.
0: So uh, I began the book with the uh, French Revolution and the the horror flip side of the French Revolution was Frankenstein. Uh, And and the link the link there was the uh, the Godwin family. Uh, William Godwin was uh, basically the main propagandist for the French Revolution in England at a time when it was certainly not popular uh, to do that. Uh, He uh, uh, tried to bring the revolution to England. England was... Uh, in many ways, the author of the revolution, because the Whig uh, Masonic lodges had been spreading revolutionary material uh, in France. They were at war with France. They destroyed the uh, Bourbon monarchy, and they didn't want. Uh, it was like they knew it was toxic, and they didn't want to come back uh, to to England. So, uh, but he was going. He was undeterred because he was convinced that he was right, and so uh, wrote a book that was sort of influential. Ruined his reputation. Uh, and attracted uh, a woman by the name of Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, and they had a child together, a child by the name of Mary. And one of the people who read uh, Godwin's book was a young aristocrat by the name of Percy Shelley. A uh, young guy, very incredibly talented guy in terms of uh, the English language, uh, a poet. They, they say poets are born and not made, and this was clearly the case with Shelley. And he's, he's a revolutionary. Now, I, I came to this uh, as a, m- someone who had studied uh, English literature in graduate school. That's what I majored in. I did my uh, doctoral dissertation in American literature on Nathaniel Hawthorne. But this was the Romantic movement. It's obviously one of the most important literary movements in, in the history of English literature. And uh, for the most part, Shelley was completely incomprehensible as uh, to me as a graduate student because they simply left out the fact that he was a revolutionary <laughs> this was largely a result of mary godwin who became mary shelley who wrote uh, a by bi- kind of biography carried the torch later on in life and turned him into something a kind of victorian angel uh, emphasized the platonism and so on and so forth this was not the shelley that showed up at godwin's door uh, this was a uh, I think he was 18 years old at the time he was carrying uh, pistols loaded pistols uh, if you know what they're like they could have gone off any time and killed somebody he was uh, drinking laudanum which was opium uh, he was half out of his mind most of the time and he showed up and uh, Mary Godwin fell in love with him
1: so um you, you started by saying that, the, that Frankenstein and, and that horror genre is the flip side of the revolution. One of the major themes in your book is the sexual, the sexual revolution that uh, was all part and parcel with uh, what the romantics were up to. Do you, uh, do you argue that the, the uh, violent revolution in France was also an aspect of that sexual revolution?
0: Yeah, it was part and parcel. There was no, there was no distinction between revolution and sexual revolution. It was all part of the same thing, and uh, this is what France stood for. And in the early days, the early days of the revolution, it was basically the free love paradise, and uh, the English were were kind of dragged along. One of the other poets that showed up was William Wordsworth uh, as a young man. Uh, A generation older than than Shelley shows up actually during the time of the revolution. Uh, wordsworth was 19 years old when the revolution broke out and he goes over there and he has an illegitimate child and there's all sorts of turmoil because of this he has to go back because england declares war on france he's separated and that's a whole whole other story but yeah there was no distinction between revolution and sexual revolution you were overthrowing the social order and that was a great idea
1: so they had their own woodstock they had they had their own summer of love
0: Right, they did, absolutely, absolutely. So Shelley's coming along a generation later when everybody, no, we're, not, we're at war now, and they are bad people, and we are the English, and we are upright. Shelley comes along at a moment when you have this religious revival in England. I'm talking about Methodism. Yeah. Method, Methodism had a huge effect on the morals of the English people, uh, and the culmination of this was the reign of Queen Victoria. And you had a complete reversal of the whole licentiousness of the uh, earlier 18th century. So, so he's so he's out of step. They're both they're both both. This I think this is why Shelley was attracted to Godwin, because they're both out of step. They both want revolution, and it was Godwin who said in his book uh, that um, marriage is the most odious of all monopolies. Well, that would that phrase would come back to bite him. Uh, because Shelley, who was married to uh, a lady by the name of Harriet, his wife Harriet, his 16-year-old wife, uh, fell in love with Mary as well and they ran off and eloped. they eloped. Uh, uh, Godwin he's, he's kind of they're all in a bind here all these people are in a bind Godwin yeah marriage is the most odious of all mal- well wait a minute that's my daughter you just ran off with <laughs> I, I have mixed feelings about this now you know and she, Mary is raised by two sexual revolutionaries her right. mother is her mother is Mar- uh, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft who was the f- founder of feminism she had been hired as a journalist To cover the French Revolution. And she went over there, you know, a day late, a dollar short. She thinks she's got this idea of what the revolution is and what a great thing it is. And suddenly she slips. Uh, Why am I slipping here? It's not snowing out, it's blood. the the entire place de revolution was covered with blood because of all the decapitations that took place there with the the guillotine now how are you going to bring this into your feminist ideology well you're not she never wrote the book because she couldn't understand what was going on and that's where we start talking about the
1: unintended consequences of revolution so so in our revolution our um iteration of this it starts with make love not war but then it winds up with making war. In our case, on the unborn, with the abortion carnage. Right, right. Uh, it always ends in bloodshed. You're saying Wollstonecraft was a naïve, uh, where she, she didn't know where her radical ideas would take her?
0: That's absolutely right. Uh, I mean, fe- feminism is not a deep uh, philosophical anything. It's a kind of ideology that's very brittle, and it breaks when it comes in contact with reality, which is basically blood in the street. So much blood, you're slipping. and you don't, She couldn't deal with it, she
1: couldn't write that book. So, so, it, so would you say that Mary Shelley um, maybe did a little bit of the reverse, where she went and looked over the abyss and had second thoughts?
0: She is the same as her mother in that she had a really difficult time dealing with the consequences of her actions. So you got this ideology where, uh, hey, it's just like uh, taking a drink of water. That was uh, the Russian lady who said that the next revolution, uh, Alexandra Kolontai. Uh, And it turns out, no, it's not that. It's not that simple. If you're dealing with sex, you're dealing with something that's really deep and really powerful, and your ideology is like a six-inch line plumbing, trying to plumb the Mariana Trench, which is 35,000 feet deep. So it's not going to work, but it comes out, it works out differently here. So they elope. They go to uh, Switzerland. They have their summer of love uh, at the very time, uh, the summer when... Uh, This volcano in Indonesia had just blasted billions of tons of ash into the sky. So there was no summer. It was cold. It was rainy. They couldn't go hiking. They couldn't go sailing. So they stayed home and they read horror stories, gothic novels. And this put the idea into Mary's mind. So the idea is there. They're also talking about um, Galvani's experiments with frog's legs and the electricity what is electricity It just kind of been discovered around this time ben franklin worked with it in america uh, ben franklin was called the american prometheus because he stole fire from the sky and put it to work for mankind that's what electricity was so uh what is frankenstein called he's called the modern prometheus okay so uh so this is all these ideas are floating around in her mind uh, Ken Russell did a film called Gothic, if you want to see his interpretation of the summer of love with Shelley and Byron and the other people. But she comes back to England, and suddenly the consequences of their actions catch up with them. Harriet, uh, Shelley's wife, has committed suicide. Her body was just fished out of the serpentine, and suddenly Mary has to deal with guilt. Now, where does guilt fit into this picture? It's yeah. T- Where does it fit in? First of all, if you're dealing with the ideology of the French Revolution, you're dealing with somebody like uh, De La Métrie who said man was a machine. If you're you're dealing with the Marquis de Sade uh, who said woman was a machine for voluptuousness and they were reading... Justine. This is obvious in Ken Russell's film that they were reading Justine, which is basically the Marquis de Sade's uh, masterpiece. And de Sade is basically you're a machine. And what you call love is basically fluids. It's the movement of fluids. That's it. That's what de Sade said. And so, OK, I agree with that. Go for it. Except now I feel guilty because that woman who was his wife, she killed herself because of my selfishness. Now these right. are all words that are not part of the revolutionary vocabulary. So yeah. I'm, I'm saying that uh, basically we're faced with a parallelogram of forces here, okay? You, ha- you have the moral law which is written on your heart because you're a human being and you have revolutionary ideology and these are the two vectors and what do you do to bisect what bisects that angle resolves those parallelogram of forces it's horror yeah. so you can't say it you what are you going to say i am I'm, I'm sorry i committed adultery i'll go to confession she didn't believe in any of this type of stuff right she's
1: a revolutionary so, right That's all she knows so um, whatever else it is, guilt is not a movement of fluids, right? It's... How do you
0: explain guilt from a materialistic point of view? It shouldn't exist. And we know it shouldn't exist, and we tell ourselves it shouldn't exist, but why do I feel guilty then if it doesn't exist?
1: Right. That's the whole point of this. All right, so how, um, if, if horror as a genre is born out of accumulated, unresolved guilt, guilt that I can't name guilt that I can't identify, but guilt that I feel nonetheless. How does horror help? Or what does horror, pro- how does horror promise to help?
0: The, the monster uh, articulates your, your, your dilemma. So you can't say it, so you create a monster, and the monster is uh, what, what the Greeks would call nemesis. It's the return of the repressed. That's what Freud would say, and basically, it articulate you. You the, you can't articulate it, but the monster articulates,
1: uh, basically,
0: the moral law that you've rejected.
1: So, so the monster is the incarnation of your guilt, right.
0: right? Right. Or, or it's the it's the representation of the moral law. It's nemesis, and so if you if you step forward, you fast forward to the, begin- the uh, beginning of the last era of modern film, which is the late 70s, you have the, uh, uh, the babysitter movies, Halloween, where the babysitters invite their boyfriends over, and as soon as the girl takes her shirt off, the monster jumps out and stabs her to death. Well, that's, that's the moral law. And, and everybody feels good now because we, I, I, I couldn't articulate this. <laughs> this is right sex can kill you why didn't someone tell me that sex sex made a mess of my life why didn't someone tell me that that's precisely the role that the monster plays in Frankenstein so she the monster says what she should have said which is the monster confronts Dr. Frankenstein and he said thou didst sport with life that's what she should have said but couldn't say she couldn't say it so the
1: monster said it for her so is there another is there another layer to this so uh, Mary Shelley has this unresolved guilt she writes this story where the monster embodies that guilt and then confronts dr. Frankenstein with with what he did so at to that extent Mary Shelley's kind of looking in the mirror right or if you take a, a babysitter movie where the the uh, immoral woman is killed the the person who's watching that movie who's done the same sort of things the baby di- babysitter did has a cathartic release and then yes. is out, and then is out on the sidewalk after the movie not dead right I, that's I, right I, I had a substitute die in my place
0: i i think you're right the word is catharsis the word that's aristotle's term it's a medical term okay. uh, and it, it basically, it's like a purgation of, of fear and pity. So they're, they're, it's, a, it's a purgative, you know? You've, you've, been th- you've been through a vicarious experience that represents the life that you're leading. Someone finally articulated what you couldn't articulate yourself and you feel better as a result right. of that.
1: But the thing, the thing about it is that you feel only temporarily better. Because you've still got this guilt, uh, the, if, you still, if you keep on living the same way, if you still are sleeping around or doing drugs or messing with, the, you know, killing your unborn children, that, the fact that you've seen three, five, seven horror films isn't going to stay with you. you something's, you're still accumulating guilt. Yeah, that's great for Hollywood because they can do the the
0: seventh remake of uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> so you get a little fix, and then you keep going back for more and more. You know, uh, uh, it's basically a palliative. It doesn't get to the heart of the problem, because the heart the heart of the problem is you, you have to say I sinned, right. and, I, and I I'm sorry that I sinned. So this is a way of uh, letting you have your cake and eat it too. Go, but I think
1: I go ahead. Go, going back to Mary Shelley, would you describe her attitude as one of regret but not repentance?
0: Yeah, I think that's precisely what we're talking about here. The inability to repent basically makes the fiction, the horror fiction, mandatory. It makes it necessary as a right. way of dealing with guilt. We we tend to uh, uh, we tend to underestimate. I think because we still live in a a, a culture where Christianity is a possibility and uh, forgiveness of sins and the expiation of sin that Jesus Christ brought about is a reality that uh, is still there. It's not going to go away simply because you don't follow it. And so we tend to minimize the power that guilt has uh, in people's lives. Like, what do you do with guilt? How do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? Well, you can, you can mobilize uh, because misery loves company. And so if you feel guilty about abortion and you don't want to repent the, the sin that you committed, you can join the National Organization of Women. And you're surrounded by a, a big march in Washington and you feel better about yourself because, to all these, because all those other people are out there. Same thing applies to gay pride uh, marches where you engage in a form of exhibitionism mm-hmm. uh, uh, and you march down the public sphere and hardly have any clothes on at all, you know, and God didn't strike me dead and the sun was shining and all the other, that guy looks even worse than I do and you f- get this momentary release of guilt by doing that.
1: All right. So there's been a progression over the years. It was not just um, at the, at the genesis what let's talk a little bit about dracula how, how does dracula enter into this how how is dracula related to the sexual revolution
0: okay there was a uh, the the revolution that took place this time is called the russian revolution and the russian revolution was a sexual revolution every bit as much as the french revolution and they didn't have a separate word until wilhelm reich uh, the the Jewish communist from Vienna wrote the book called the Sexual Revolution. Reich Reich was right in the middle of it. He was a he was a psychiatrist and he was a communist. Uh, And he was basically fighting a battle, This, this Jewish enclave is fighting the battle in Vienna, fighting the battle with the overwhelmingly Catholic population outside of Vienna, and he was trying to mobilize the people and he found that if he talked about communism, no one was interested, but if he talked about sex, he had a big audience. So that, that's, that's where the term sexual revolution came from. It was that from the beginning. This is, he wrote that book in 1933. By 1923, it was obvious that uh, this, what was going on in Russia was a, a sexual revolution. Uh, and so uh, 1919, uh, this is 1920. I, I forget the exact date, but this is when the film version was made, the first uh, Dracula film. Okay. Uh, uh, Nos, Nosferatu, I believe it was. It was made in Germany. Berlin was the film capital of the world that made many more films than Hollywood during this period of time. Uh, but we're talking about something that was um, had come into existence earlier, namely the resurrection of the Dracula myth, uh, which was thanks to Bram Stoker, wrote the okay. novel. Uh, Bram Stoker was a uh, an, an agent a theatrical agent who spent his time uh, at night. He was basically a night creature because that's when theater performances were and there was always something after the theater performance. And so you spent your time as a creature of the night. And during the night, there were temptations out there. And I I think the evidence is that uh, Stoker succumbed to the temptations, sexual temptations, Uh, because I think what Dracula is about is syphilis. Okay, I think I'm the first guy who said that. I, I, I think I'm the first guy who said it. Uh, but it's obvious from, from the book, and then the biography of Bram Stoker came out, and there's it goes on and on, and then there's a, an appendix at the end, a little one-page like one thing at the end which says, oh, oh by the way, he, he contracted syphilis. Well, what do you mean, <laughs> by the way? That's not by the way. That's crucial to understanding what this thing is about. Because, again, you're talking about something that is so bad, I can't talk about it. But it's so bad, I can't not talk about it either. And right. he's, he's in the bind. So Jonathan Harker is not precisely this bind. The bind is even more specific than that. Because at this point, you would have men who would contract uh, syphilis. And then they would infect their wives. So the wives were completely innocent victims of this. Uh, uh, and contract the syphilis and would oftentimes die of it. And this was a kind of hush-hush kind of story that no, nobody wanted to talk about. Nobody wanted to talk about that. It's a horrible thing, and I understand why nobody wanted to talk about but Bram Stoker had to talk about it, and he couldn't talk about it openly, and so he had to create a monster. And the monster, like the classic moment in, in uh, Dracula is Jonathan Hart goes to this castle. There's that weird dreamlike sequence with three women. That's where he contracted uh, syphilis, although that's not in the book. And then he's back in the hospital in Budapest, and his girlfriend comes to him, and Jonathan says, here is my diary. Do not read it. It's like the classic example of what I'm talking about here. Okay. In other words, I have to talk about it, but I don't want to talk about it. And so I'll let the monster talk about it. And so basically you have Dracula as the man who articulates the fear, the fear of that age, the fear that emanated from that uh, uh, revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution of 1919, which was basically the syphilis uh, epidemic of the 1920s when there was no cure for this.
1: So, from how, how you're articulating this, I, I've got this thing that I have to talk about. I, I hate talking about it. I don't want to talk about it, but I must. Uh, so, th- the creation of this monster, the incarnation of this monster, uh, could be summed up as: God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. All right? You've yeah. got. You've got, or, or
0: the wages of sin is death, right? And when and when sin reaches maturity, it gives birth to death. That's the letter of uh, Saint James,
1: right? So you have this inexorable process, um, and you've got uh, it's like a disembodied, impersonal law that these people are these poor people are trying to appease or placate in some way. They're trying to manage it, but they know it's an unmanageable thing that's because the story always ends the same way it's not it's not like the per, the monster gives you a good scare and then you go home no no
0: why why am i why do i feel guilt it, it does i i believe in the russian revolution i believe in dialectical materialism i believe that man is a machine these are all these revolutionary principles all the way up to this time they have lots of followers and but why do i feel guilty
1: Right. Same thing in Crime and Punishment, where Dostoevsky has the, the protagonist uh, acting out on his, his, uh, his nihilistic principles, and then all of a sudden this guilt. Where's, where's this guilt come from? Right. I and can't I- account for it.
0: And he, he was reacting to the, to the Jewish terrorists uh, of his day, uh, Nadia Volia, who were spreading these ideas. This is before the Russian Revolution. This is the lead up to the Russian Revolution. You're,
1: you're saying Dusty, Dostoevsky was reacting to that. Right. Yes. Right. yes. Okay. He, was
0: awa- he was aware of these currents being circulated at universities in places like St. Petersburg and Moscow
1: okay so uh, let me ask you uh, for uh, maybe an autobiographical report did um i've always been mystified how how people are attracted to horror or you know s- horror movies and that sort of thing is this something that you came to understand you know watching them you just as regular people do and then you said oh, wait there's something's funny going on or did you come to it from outside as a researcher where you saw this and you had to go watch the films to to be able to write about it?
0: I uh, came of age in the 1960s. Uh, I, got, I got married in 1969. Okay. I, w- I was 21 years old and my wife was 20 years old. And because of that, we were both spared a lot of uh, bad experiences. But I saw the people, friends who were not married or even friends who were married, watched them succumb to what was going on all around us the sexual revolution of that, right. of that period. And I knew that something was wrong, uh, but I couldn't articulate it. I mean, you just don't. When it's happening, you can't articulate. I didn't have the categories. I couldn't understand what was going on. So at this point, um, fast forward another 20 years, I had just done the biography of John Cardinal Kroll the Archbishop of Philadelphia. It was an archival book. I had to plow through documents and archives. And it was, you know, kind of dry stuff, but, you know, that's what it was. And suddenly I'm done with that, and I'm thinking, there's something new on the horizon here. It's called the VHS, the VHS machine, the videotape machine. Okay. And suddenly you could go to stores. They don't exist anymore, but you could go to stores where they had Basically, every single movie that was ever made was now on videotape, and you could do research. Okay. In in, in a way, before that, you would have to go to major in film at uh, the University of Southern California and put reels of film on things and do that, that type of stuff. Now, anybody could do research into film, and I started watching videos, and I found myself... I don't know why maybe because of what i just said drawn to these horror type of uh, videos because there were a lot of them out there right you know and and i started it was at this point i started to put put the pieces together and that that basically came what came about then was the third part of the these the book the monsters from the which was basically alien right which was the movie along with halloween alien came out in 1979 Halloween came out in 1978. These were the two films that inaugurated the era of horror films, the most recent era of horror films, which was basically the entire 1980s. And how
1: how how far into it did you get before you noticed? Hey, these are all telling the same story. Well, it's a it's a very
0: gradual process because you're thinking all this all this type of stuff. I mean, I saw a lot of movies. I mean, it was a kind of joke in my family. To come down and there's dad or there's granddad and some scantily clad woman is running around screaming, you know, and I'm watching my 37th slasher film or something like that. So you had enormous amounts of material and I had to put it together with some type of historical framework, which is not apparent at all in any of this type of stuff. That's me. That's my background coming to this and trying to, but by, by by the time I got to Alien, I started to realize that the, the 70s were this, the era of big screen pornography. This is where they tried, Hollywood broke the code in 1965 with a uh, the pawnbroker, basically a Holocaust porn film, and then throughout the 70s, you saw t- t- trying to break down barriers, one more barrier, and so by the time, uh, 72 comes around you had Deep Throat and uh, The Devil and Miss Jones. Hardcore pornography being shown on mainstream theater uh, and being reported in the New York Times. That type of thing. And, And so the 70s was very transgressive in this regard. One transgressive film after another. And then finally you had What I no one I no one said it before me. I'm the first guy who said that horror was a reaction to to pornography. No one had ever said that before, because they were all controlled by this mindset of yeah, what's wrong with pornography? Yeah, what's wrong with sexual liberation? And then and the candid moment say yeah, I got a venereal disease and my heart was broken. But no, I agree. It's a good no. It doesn't make any sense. Right. And I was the one basically who said that the causality is there. The Deep Throat is I'm sorry, the Alien is the sequel to Deep Throat. Because yeah. it's not apparent in Alien, but basically if you go, I, if you go and look at the details, that monster that puts its attaches it to John Hurt's face, inserts his penis down his throat and impregnates him. Mm. That's, that's what's going on there. I interviewed uh, by the way, I interviewed the guy who created the monster, Hans, Hans Rudy Giger, Swiss guy. Uh, uh, and he had done books called uh, a book called Necronomicon which is these details just dark stuff very dark stuff pornographic dark stuff and I said to him I I I was trying to see what how what consciousness did he have he didn't have any I said uh, so he the Necronomicon is about his girlfriend Lee Tobler committing suicide well why did she commit suicide well I don't know I'm talking to him talking to him in German Uh I don't know. I don't know. I said, well, did you ever... I said, look, there are all these dead babies in your pictures. Did you ever procure an abortion? He said, no. Well, that doesn't mean that she didn't. There's something going on behind your back here that you didn't even know. And so, but he said, but we did agree that we would never have children. So basically, you're back to the church fathers who said abortion and contraception are equally bad. That's something our culture doesn't understand. So he was unaware Unaware of what he was doing. He's the man who created the, the, the quintessential monster for decades after that, that creepy, slimy alien monster. So, he was the one who did it. So and no...
1: Go ahead. So you've said um, in in Monsters from the Id, you're the first one to draw this connection that Alien is the sequel to Deep Throat. And you're the... and. But when I read your book, Monsters from the Id, everything about it seems manifestly self-evident it's um, speaking as a pastor watching how people react l- reading the story it it seems very very clear that the 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 monster is the law the 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 monster is the inexorable law that will destroy you because God is not mocked right. and uh, and I don't understand why for example if if everybody Uh, agrees, if everybody says the sexual revolution is great, then why don't we just fade off into the sunset making soft porn movies forever? Why Why do you have to have this hard judgment come in? Well, because we're made in the image of God and we can't help ourselves. That's
0: right, we are rational creatures whether we want to be or not. And rationality, practical reason is morality. That's how you achieve the good. You have to act in a certain way if you wanna achieve the good and have a successful life. If you disregard that moral law, you will have an unhappy life, and your mind will be darkened, and you won't even understand
1: why you're unhappy. So what kind of feed, uh, I've said from my read, it's self-evident, your thesis is self-evident. Do you get, have you gotten that kind of feedback from other writers, scholars, theologians?
0: No, no, it's been basically ignored. Uh, uh, but the, 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 the younger generation uh, uh, discovered these ideas through my other book, Libido Dominandi, Sexual mm-hmm. Liberation and Political Control, which was basically the book I wrote after Monsters from the End. So, like, like a whole history of, uh, of sexual revolution. As soon as I said uh, sexual liberation was a form of control, there were millions of people who understood immediately what I was saying. Because right. they were completely addicted to pornography and masturbation,
1: right? And Chester, I, Chesterton says somewhere that free love is the first and most obvious bribe that can be offered to a slave.
0: Yeah, he was. He was always kind of keyed in to the depths of the the deep s- sources of Western culture.
1: So, if someone, uh, so your um, your corpus on this topic would be what Dionysus Rising. Degenerate Moderns, Monsters from the Id, and Libido Dominandi. Would that cover the waterfront? on this topic uh,
0: they all have uh, sexuality in common living machines as well which is the book on architecture so I'm saying that this uh, this sexual issue which everyone had f- felt had been resolved and we don't need to talk about this anymore this is the key to understanding all of these all of these phenomena uh, which don't make sense without it there is and there is a moral law uh, that is in written on our hearts if you don't follow it, you're going to be unhappy, and you will end up close to death. You will have death experiences, either literally or or figuratively, and that's where that's where horror came from.
1: This this might be a rabbit uh, rabbit trail, but do you make it? We've made a connection between the uh, the sexual element and the violent element. What about the what about the drugs? Uh, is it accidental that we have people going in for uh, you know they want pot legalized everywhere and is is there a connection there
0: first of all pot legalization is driven by george soros he pays for it i mean uh because he wants a docile population he wants a population he can just push around that's that's the whole thing behind decriminalization there is uh on the other side of the coin i mean let's let's take a step back a guy a guy like hemingway Uh, Mm -hmm. he said, basically, I, I'm, I'm a drunk because I was, I treated my wife like shit. That's what he said. He needed. So when you're, when you're guilt, as I said, beginning program, guilt is a powerful force. And uh, a lot of people think they can anesthetize it by either alcohol or drugs. Uh, And, and that uh, works for a very short time and it gets worse and worse as time goes on because you can't you can't get rid of that guilt you can't get rid of the monster that this the gist of basically forbidden planet okay which is a a, one of the early precursors of the modern horror genre is that basically that's where I got the title of the book Okay. So we keep trying to keep this monster out, and we got twelve inches of Krell metal steel, and it got through that. And the guy who's dying there, Doctor, I think it's Doctor Morbius, says, uh, "You forgot monsters from the inn. You can't keep it out because it's inside of you." Mm-hmm. And this this even be, this even gets finds expression in the Alien sequels, where the one of the sequels, I forget which one. Anyway, the uh, the guy is tries to grab the monster and he falls with the monster into molten steel Mm -hmm. but that doesn't solve the problem because the monster is inside of you right that's why it's always breaking into your spaceship it's in you and you don't recognize it that's the problem
1: original sin
0: actual sin (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> original, <laughs> original sin uh, leads us gives us a weakness you know what i mean there's a weakness there we're all susceptible to this weakness uh, and actual sin is where you actually succumb to your weakness and actually do something that you know is wrong knowing
1: that it's wrong would you would you say that this is also the this unresolved guilt is the impetus for hatred of and persecution of christians because if if you can't account you know I was propagandized by the government schools for generations I was I was I I believed I was free to do all this stuff but I still feel guilty it must be because you and your christianity are 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 making me feel bad uh y- you are the source of my problem yes
0: uh f- Phobia means fear and hatred. Phobos means fear and hatred. And so the, the psychological mechanism you're talking about is called projection. Mm-hmm. What what do you project? You project guilt. You have to get rid of it. You have to get rid of it. How can I get rid of it? Okay, you can project it onto someone who becomes the enemy. Or, I mean, in classical terms, it's known as the scapegoat. Right. You project it onto some object, and then you kill the object, and that's supposed to be some type of expiation. Or, let's go back to a more legitimate form, namely the the temple uh, in in Jerusalem. This was animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice uh, expiated guilt. Okay, now, the Jews... Uh, rejected Jesus Christ. They they called for his crucifixion and 30 years later they got the payback which was when the temple was destroyed as Jesus Christ predicted it would be. At this right. point the Jews have no way of expiating guilt. And so mm-hmm. as a result they become masters of projection. Masters of projection which is what they are to this day. This is 2000. Another book I wrote is called The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, which deals with this uh, in detail. So what you, the, the Jesus Christ is the Logos incarnate You rejected Logos, which is the order of the universe. We have already talked about the moral order as part of the order of the universe. And so as a result, you've accumulated guilt, which you cannot expiate because you don't have a temple, you don't have a priesthood, and you don't have sacrifice. And so you become a master of projecting this onto people
1: you deem as your enemy. So taking it back to the monster, the monster is the incarnation of your guilt, the projection of your guilt. Yeah, but the problem with the monster is you can't kill the monster. Uh, No, but you can't. If you project your guilt onto someone, you can kill or someone you can exile. That would be the Christian who has the who's giving you the bad news about this monster.
0: Right. So you're seeing this across the board. Okay. uh, all of these so-called liberal-tolerant regimes are all now uh, demonizing people they don't like. So like Canada is the classic example. What we just saw in Canada was a classic example of identity theft and projection. So Drew, Justin Trudeau is a pawn, a lackey of the oligarchs, doesn't represent the Canadian people at all. The truckers show up, and he immediately accuses them, projects his feelings onto them, calls them Nazis. Right. They're Nazis. They're not Nazis. You're not doing your job. OK, yeah. that's what you're saying. And Canada is the place where uh, you now it's against the law to uh, engage in what they call conversion therapy, which is basically counseling people who are unhappy about being homosexuals. That That's the type of demonization and scapegoating that is going on. There are two, uh, an even uh, uh, Lutheran bishop in Finland and a member of parliament in the Finnish parliament who quoted. St Paul's letter to the Romans are now being put on trial. This is exactly mm-hmm. the type of projection of guilt onto those people because you cannot commit actions like that and not have not feel guilty. It's impossible. It is right. ontologically impossible and this is the explanation of how they deal with it.
1: And when we're when we look at the carnage of abortion we're talking about a vast reservoir of guilt. We're not just talking about individual guilt, we're talking about a reservoir of guilt that runs up to the Supreme Court, the White House, both houses of Congress. We're all in on this revolution and we're all guilty.
0: And we're all projecting. And so it becomes more and more obvious. Like first of all, uh, as soon as Sigourney Weaver took over the, uh, the alien franchise, it became about abortion. Alien Two is about abortion. It's mm-hmm. about the guilt that uh, I don't know whether Sigourney Weaver ever had an abortion, but this is clearly a drama that is about abortion uh, because you cannot kill your own child and not feel guilt about it. And right. so, what, you, what you're doing, what you're seeing here, is the rise of this these extreme, uh, radical, uh, what should I say, anti-logos movements like transgenderism, where you're at war with being you're mm-hmm. at war with the very idea that there is such a thing as being there's a logos to your sexuality that you're male or female this is only this is like the these are the children of the the generation that gave us abortion right. this, this is the only the logical conclusion of this
1: right so here we are in clown world and it and it has to and it's a very bloody horrific uh, it's creepy clown world. It's not just clown world, it's creepy clown world. And it's because we won't turn to Christ to deal with our sin. You're absolutely right.
0: You're absolutely right. And the whole, po- the whole point of this culture is to pretend that you don't feel guilty and so for there- therefore you don't need Christ. Right. You don't need Christ, you don't need his sacrifice on the cross which brought about the expiation of, of sin. There's always an option, and the whole point of our culture is to foreclose that option. Now, you're, talk, you're, you're rightly saying when you have millions of abortions, you're talking about a cultural commitment to this. You're not talking about something that is individual. There right. are individual guilt is the source of it, but you're having structures, structures in your culture that are basically going to make wrong right or die trying. I guess the classic class example in my mind is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, You know, who went to her death regretting the fact that America didn't come around to her view on abortion. Mm -hmm. And now it looks as if the Supreme Court's heading in the the opposite direction because we're starting to see you can't. That's an untenable position. It's an untenable position.
1: Right. So let's uh, we have to bring this in for a landing and probably end with Isaiah's uh, words, Isaiah 520, woe to those who call good evil and evil good who substitute light for darkness and darkness for light, sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. We're reaping the harvest of that now in our entertainment, in our life, in our political life. And I thank you, um, E. Michael Jones, for a marvelous book, most instructive book. Thank you.
0: Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the audiobook for Monsters from the Id. The Rise of Horror in Fiction and Film. Available now on Canon Plus.